Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for Mito Action's podcast, Energy in Action. I'm Kyra Mann, CEO of Mito Action, and I'm your host. Here on Energy in Action, we talk all things Mito, and I'm glad you're here to learn and be part of our community. We are thrilled to have with us today David Fawn for today's episode of Energy in Action. And David is going to share with us his incredible story about his daughter, Catherine, how they entered this incredible mitochondrial disease community, not by choice, of course, and all the incredible work that he and his, his wife, Glenda, have been doing to advocate not only for Catherine, but for all of us in the mitochondrial disease community. So welcome, David. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So why don't we start off by you just telling us the story about Catherine and how Catherine was diagnosed and the signs and symptoms that were happening in her life that caused you to think something was wrong and the path that you've taken to get to the point of diagnosis and truly her defying the odds in mitochondrial disease. It's my pleasure. Catherine developed hitting all of her, the typical milestones for about six months of her of her life after she was born. You know, she did the sit up, the rollover, all the various milestones you would expect a child to hit on time, if not a little bit early. And that's not to say that we didn't see some things that we found to be a little bit unusual, but we're first time parents. So you, you never know if you're just being worried and, right. and, and that sort of thing. The examples of that are when she picked up her bottle, her hands weren't open and grasping around the bottle, but they were more sort of her fingers were turned in and she would pick it up kind of awkwardly. And I thought I saw a bit of an intention tremor when she would reach for things. Um, and I'm, a, I'm particularly attuned to that because there is an intention tremor that runs in my family, my side of the family. And my, my wife, frankly, didn't see it at least early on. But, you know, she was meeting her milestones until she got to be about one. We expected her to walk independently a couple months before her first birthday because she was, you know, pulling up and, and kind of scooting along, holding on to furniture at about 10 months old. So we expected her to, to take that first step, you know, at 10 or 11 months at the latest. And that's when we started to see a plateau. Um, she just didn't take that first step. And it, it wasn't just that she missed the milestone of walking by one year old, because, you know, a lot of kids are different and the doctors don't consider one year old to be some sort of threshold uh, date for hitting that milestone. There's a, you know, a lot of kids do that later. But for my, but my wife and I were concerned because of the plateau itself. At that age, you see rapid development in these different kinds of motor skills, and Catherine just stopped. So when my wife took Catherine to her one-year-old wellness appointment, she broke down crying talking to the doctor. She just knew something was wrong, and, and she felt it was significant. At that point, I was a bit more in denial than she was, but she just knew that motherly instinct. She just knew something was wrong. Um, the doctor reassured us that, you know, she's hit all the milestones we expect by her first birthday and the walking thing. Well, you know, if she's not walking by her second birthday, then they'll start to be concerned, but we shouldn't yet worry. They didn't see any reason to worry, but that plateau continued uh, for, for month after month after the wellness appointment. Uh, she still wasn't taking that first step. She didn't seem to be making much progress toward taking that first independent step. So at about a year and a half, we put her in uh, physical therapy and fairly quickly added occupational therapy at the advice of our 
therapist and they couldn't frankly figure out what was going on. She was able to move, you know, all of her body parts. She had strength in all of her body parts, but it just wasn't all coming together for her to, to walk independently more than maybe a step or two before falling. And, you know, this continued on. We, we worked for a long time and, and she overcame certain other obstacles she had. She had some sensory uh, processing issues that they were able to help us overcome, but the walking just wasn't one of them. So when she turned two, the pediatrician finally said, okay, we're concerned now. So they referred us to a neurologist at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital, which is nearby. We live in Lexington, Kentucky, or out, just outside of Lexington. It's a very good uh, children's hospital. So they referred us up there and we went. And the first thing we did is uh, we had an MRI performed. And I can tell you that MRI day was the worst day of my life. I, I still get, we've had three MRIs total now, and I still get triggered when, when the word MRI comes up because each time we have one, there's new concerns, new bad news. And just the thought of them makes me physically ill. Quite literally, I get sick to my stomach. But just a month past her second birthday, we had the MRI performed. And I should have known something was wrong when the doctor didn't call me with the results in normal office hours. He called me that evening after the normal office visits were all over. And he told me at the time that they thought she had a medical condition called infantile neuroaxonal dystrophy, or INAD. And that's not a mitochondrial disease, but it's it's a very serious and very rare progressive disorder. And they, they were basing this on her MRI, which was very, very unusual. Two different neurologists at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital had looked at it. And in their experience, they had only seen a similar MRI one time in, in either educational setting or clinical setting. And that was another INAD patient. So we started this journey with a uh, what turned out to be an incorrect diagnosis of INAD. You know, it's, I don't mean to say anything wrong about the Cincinnati Children's Hospital. There were very, very good reasons why they thought that was what she had. MRI result was very rare. And uh, in, at least in the literature at the time, that was what you would expect the condition to be. There were a couple telltale signs that if they were present, there virtually could be no other option except INAD, but they weren't present in our daughter. There's an iron buildup in part of your brain that's that happens in INAD that just wasn't present in the MRI, but that can happen later in the course of the disease. So uh, that wasn't, didn't exclude it. But we started out in the INAD community and we got to know some families, other families with INAD children. Um, we did a lot of research. I read virtually every medical journal article I could find on the condition. I'm a layperson. I'm a, I'm a, an attorney. So boy, reading those medical journal articles is, is difficult. You have to start. Yeah, it's overwhelming. It's over the, the, the language they use. We don't share anything in common uh, with the words they use. And I have to look up every other word and it's hard to get an understanding of what they're even talking about, but you do your best. And I became quickly convinced that Catherine did not have INA based on what I was reading in both the medical literature 
as well as seeing online with uh, lay people and their stories, talking to uh, confirmed INAD patients. Um, and I actually reached out to an expert in that particular condition, a physician, and talked to her about what we were seeing. And she was less certain about the diagnosis than the, the doctors were at the children's hospital. And I became convinced that what we were seeing was not INAD, in part because the clinical development of the disease that the families were seeing with INAD was drastically different than what we were seeing with Catherine. You know, it's, it's one of these things that, you know, with a lot of these conditions and rare disease conditions and neurological conditions that, you know, there are a lot of similarities in what you see clinically, you know, motor skill problems, balance problems, you know, low muscle tone, you know, you could kind of, if you're checking off boxes, she checked off the physical signs of INAD, most, you know, at least some of them, but same could be said of, of about a hundred other rare diseases, if you really got down to it. But the uh, order in which you tended to see these symptoms was different with INAD, in part because the way INAD affects the body and leads to those problems is different and progresses in a different order. And so I became convinced that despite checking off a lot of these boxes and having a similar MRI, that she didn't have INAD. And I really pushed the doctors to uh, do a genetic test, a single gene test of a gene that's common with INAD. It's present in about 80% of INAD cases, not present in about 20%. So it's not definitive, but I wanted them to do the test. And Dr ordered it. And unfortunately, our first fight with insurance came then because they refused to cover the genetic test. And as a lot of people in our community well know, genetic testing is is sometimes tough to get covered by insurance. Yeah. It's interesting because you were going down the road of trying to rule out a diagnosis instead of searching for a diagnosis at this point, which is interesting because you knew something wasn't right. Well, yes. And and I guess there's a bit of a split there because I was convinced something wasn't right. And I didn't want to accept a diagnosis based on an MRI alone. If there was another test that could be more definitive, the doctors had stated that they were about 90% certain it was INAD. I just couldn't accept INAD and go home if I had these nagging doubts. Well, and I think, David, you're, you're, that's a lesson for the whole community is that when you feel like something's wrong or it doesn't sit well with you, you've got to follow your instinct. And you did that from day one. Absolutely. And I think that's very important for our patients to understand that the doctors have more knowledge than us on the medical field, but we have more knowledge about our kids than they do. We see them every day. And in, and in my case, what I was seeing every day and what my wife was seeing every day did not match what INAD patients were seeing every day with their kids. You know, good doctors are willing to say, okay, I'm, I'll listen and I'll, I'll look and follow up. And in this case, they ordered the INAD, the single gene test at the time is PLA2G6 is the gene name. Um, and then we had to overcome some obstacles with insurance because they just weren't going to cover it. And that's devastating. It's devastating. The way I took it at the time was the insurance company saying, well, your daughter is going to pass away soon anyway. So what's the point? 
It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We can't do anything about it. Just go home and uh, spend as much time as you can with your daughter uh, while, you know, while you can, which is something our a doctors had originally said in their diagnosis when I asked if there was any research and any treatment and any hope. And that was, a, they said, you know, at the time, there's no, there's not much research into INAD. And if some treatment came along based on the progression, expected progression of the disease, it wasn't likely to be available before her life expectancy came up. And they said, they advised us to spend as much time as we could with our daughter. As a dad, to hear that news about your daughter and to know that, you know, you have this aching feeling in your gut that this is not the diagnosis. This is not Catherine's fate. We know that there's got to be some hope. We know there have to be some other answers. Tell me what that was like for you to push forward really in the fight for her life. I think, honestly, that was the first main lesson that we have to fight. We have to push as parents. When you're outside the rare disease community, your interactions with the medical community are different. You go into a doctor, if they diagnose you with a medical condition, you you accept their diagnosis, you accept their plan of treatment, you wait for medical science to offer you new options, new pharmaceuticals, you know, whatever else. You just accept the diagnosis, accept the treatment, do what the doctors tell you to do and go home. And, and usually you don't have much you don't have that much to fight with insurance over. Mm-hmm. But in this community, um, it's completely different. And I never realized it before that getting the diagnosis is hard. The treatments are rarely out there. The insurance companies are burdens, uh, hurdles, just step after step after step um, because they don't want to cover genetic testing. They don't want to cover uh, experimental treatments. They don't want to cover, you know, they consider a wide variety of things to be experimental treatments that go far beyond what I would think of as a layperson as experimental. And so you constantly have to fight. This rejection made me so angry and so hurt and so angry that I, I just couldn't believe what they were telling me, that it wasn't medically necessary to perform this genetic test that could confirm what she had or lead us down a road to looking at other options. And even though it may be true that There wasn't much that could be done for INAD to to cure her. But even if it was INAD, there are things you can do or changes in your medical plan uh, that you can undertake. You know, you can look for uh, brain changes in the that might lead to seizures. You might get on seizure medications early. There are different things you do for a lot of these diseases that if you can't cure them, you can still change your treatment plan to alleviate some of the side effects and and slow down the progression. So this made me so angry. And as a lawyer, I was fortunately equipped to fight the insurance company. And I undertook the appeal myself. And I tell you, I overdid it. My, uh, <laughs> I, I like when I speak in person, I like to take my appeal letter and materials with me. Sometimes it was, it was my Moby Dick. It was, you know, my appeal letter and materials were hundreds of pages long, just spelling out while they were wrong on so many different levels. And they gave in and they approved her single gene test. And, you know, at, at that point in time, that single gene test was about $3,000. And we, we were going to undertake it through our own savings, but fortunately they, they approved it. Um, we got the gene test and uh, came back with no mutations in that particular gene. Which is what you expected. 
is what I expected, not what the doctors expected, but what I, and I remember uh, at the time I was in the a parking lot of a grocery store when I got a phone call from the doctor telling us that, that the test was uh, negative for mutations. And I started uh, crying. I was so relieved and you, all this stress you're carrying around just suddenly off your shoulders to a degree. I mean, we still don't know what she has. There's still a possibility that she has INAD. It's just in the 20% of the confirmed patients that don't have that gene mutation. And frankly, at the time, they didn't know what uh, mutation might cause the other rarer cases of INAD. Well, and also think about, you know, if she falls within that 20%, having that genetic test done, what scientists and researchers can learn from Catherine's journey for the next patient that may come along? Absolutely. Uh, you know, that, that can lead them to do larger genetic testing panels to, to perhaps find out what other genes are involved in INAD. Right. And if a clinical trial became available, not having a genetic confirmation would preclude her from participating. So the insurance company would have limited her from any possibility of hope or treatment. Well, that's exactly right. Insurance companies absolutely need to be better about approving genetic testing. And in my opinion, and based on my experience, that should be the first thing we do for diagnosis, not the last. Right. Um, well, you know, there are exceptions, MRIs and things like that. But, you know, we ended up to get a diagnosis after that negative test. We ended up spending um, over a year doing more common clinical tests. Some were in, more invasive than others. Um, and none of them led us to answers until we finally did a whole exome sequencing test. And we could have avoided my daughter doing skin biopsies and a lot of mito, she didn't do a muscle biopsy, but a lot of mito patients do. And these tests are far more invasive than a, a gene test. And, you know, let's, let's avoid doing those tests if we could possibly get an answer with a non-invasive genetic test at the front end. Well, and you think about all of the, the wasted time and resources that you guys spent over the course of, you know, that year or two years, when if they would have just done the right diagnostic test in the beginning, you'd have had the answers you needed. That's exactly right. And, you know, with mito patients, we could have been on mito cocktails earlier. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes, you know, the diagnosis affects what OT or PT you're doing. You know, are you preserving skills? Or are you trying to advance skills? And sometimes that depends on what you have, you know. And so the diagnosis, an early diagnosis is, in my opinion, critical. And it's not just with mito patients, it's any rare disease. You know, some of these conditions, there are treatments, there are medicines, there are right. therapeutic foods. And if you can find out what they have, you can actually prevent, you know, progression of the disease. And the earlier, the better. That's why we do, you know, infant screening. And to me, this is similar to that. It's just that we don't do it when a child is is born, but we do. We should do it at the beginning when a child clearly has a, a, some sort of rare disease or medical condition. We just need to do these whole exome panels or genome sequencing and just find out what the answers are. And, and frankly, the insurance company in our case would have spent a heck of a lot less money mm -hmm. than they ended up paying if they'd just done that at the beginning. It's unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, just such a waste of resources and inefficiency, whether they recognize it or not. I mean, they have to recognize it, right? Because the extreme costs. But what will it take for them to finally do something about it? 
Let's fast forward. So you go through this entire process. How old was Catherine when you finally got the answers and got her her NUBPL diagnosis? She was three and a half. We spent a year and a half looking. We switched our care to uh, the Cleveland Clinic, uh, Dr. Parikh, based in part on, again, my research and my suspicion that it might be a mitochondrial disease. And he's well known in the mitochondrial disease community more of a specialist in that area than the doctors were that we were seeing in Cincinnati Children's. So we started going up to him. She inherited mutations from both my wife and I on the two sides of that that gene. And Dr. Parikh, who also up to that point suspected INAD, uh, but was still really pushing for a definitive answer, looked at the disease. Then it was very, very, very rare at the time, still is very rare, but uh, he looked into the literature, and when he called us to tell us what the results were, he was, he said, this is it. I, I'm sure this is it. It fits everything. It fits the clinical symptoms we see. It fits the order in which we've seen them. It fits the MRIs, although yours is slightly different than what we see in the literature. It's still within the family of what we would expect to see. This has to be it. You saw hope. We saw hope. Absolutely. That's wonderful. So now let's fast forward. How old is Catherine today? Catherine's 10 today. That's wonderful. She'll be 11 in July. And tell me how she's doing. She's doing fantastic. You know, we've had three, a total of three MRIs. One of them we got at the Cleveland Clinic uh, in, when she was three years old. And we had another one just recently. We're now going to CHOP, uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. We're doing research at CHOP. So we're We've moved her clinical treatment up there just to consolidate appointments. We see progression in her MRIs of atrophy in her cerebellum, which is the primary problem with NUBPL. But clinically, we see nothing but growth and advancement with Catherine. That's great. It's fantastic. Her, her balance has been profoundly affected, and that's really the root of her walking issues, as it turns out. You know, they're there are motor planning issues with your, cere you know, with cerebellar atrophy that go along with it. But for her, it's the inability to balance. But that's progressed. She started walking with a walker when she was about four, um, but it was very off balance, very clumsy, and she'd weave everywhere. And then she started taking walking on her own without a walker at uh, six years old. She now walks independently. We've got a walker. We've got a wheelchair to use if needed, but she just, she just won't use them. She doesn't use them. She gets around school. She has a, uh, an aide at school, somebody to help her with transitions because her balance is so bad. She does fall fairly frequently, but uh, she walks unassisted. Um, she's a little bit behind grade level, but she's mainstreamed in fifth grade uh, with an IEP and some special educational programs and an aid and PT and OT at school, speech therapy at school, but she's doing great. She's keeping up uh, with her classwork. Uh, she's got great friends at her school. She loves school. And she just recently this year uh, joined the cheerleading team, which- Oh, I love that. It, it just, watching her out there cheer, I just smile from ear to ear. Oh, I can imagine. Because a little girl a few years ago, I, I, I couldn't see ever walking on her own, is now out there- cheering for three hours straight. She has to cheer for three basketball games. She's jumping, she's running, she's cheering. And it's just incredible. 
um, and we couldn't be happier with how she's progressing. So I have had the the pleasure of following you guys on social media and and watching all of this unfold, and to to see Catherine walk like you know walking across the grass. I remember that was a big deal. That was a big deal. But her fire and determination is just unmatched. It it truly is, and you know I can only imagine as a dad how much that fills your heart. But even for those of us in the community who've had a chance to have a ringside seat and watch her in this battle, and she's winning it with grace and determination, and it's just inspiring. It truly is. Thank you. And and she's my hero. She inspires me every day with her determination. She has more drive than anybody I've ever met before. And, and honestly, I believe that's part of why she's progressed because her balance was so bad. And it would be easy for easy for her to quit fighting and, and go into a wheelchair, which you know people at school wanted just for safety. And she just, she wasn't going to accept it. She wasn't going to accept a wheelchair and she wasn't going to accept a walker. She was, if it, if it's possible to walk, she was going to walk yeah. and she was determined and she wasn't going to quit trying. And, and I think that's been a big part of her bro- progress. Absolutely. Right. Mind over matter. Mind over matter. So you guys get this diagnosis Catherine is progressing in amazing ways, not progressing in the disease, but progressing in her, you know, accomplishments and exceeding all expectations that when you started down this road, you never thought you would get to. You guys step outside of just supporting her and you start to support the entire community. Yes. And you start to fight for coverage for the mitococktail in Kentucky. Yes. Successfully. We, yes, successfully. I, I believe we were the first state, and, and maybe we're still the only state, to mandate private insurance cover mito cocktails specifically. I, I will say that our, the bill we got passed isn't perfect. Um, it only, it's only a mandate to private insurance, and it doesn't cover Medicaid, unfortunately, but it does require private insurance to cover mito cocktails. That's amazing. Can you can you tell us a little bit about like what that process was about? How challenging was it? Because you know we have we have so many listeners who want to get involved and want to do something. How did you begin this process to fight for the cocktails? Well, the, the process started much like the genetic odyssey for a diagnosis started. It started with an insurance company denial. We were prescribed. At the time, we were still seeing Dr. Preek, and he prescribed a mito cocktail to treat Catherine's condition. And he, he warned us at the time that insurance doesn't like to cover it. He has a lot of mito patients that can't afford it. It's really expensive. And, you know, whether or not you can afford it or want to spend the money out of your pocket is understandable. But here's the prescription if if you can afford it. So he gave us a prescription for it. We put it through insurance and insurance, as is all too common, rejected coverage for the Mito cocktail. And they did it on two grounds. One was it's just not covered. It's a food supplement, not a prescription drug. It's not medically necessary. Uh, you know, they give you the code language from the insurance policies. And the second was because we were going to have it compounded at a compounded pharmacy. And they they have a just a baseline exclusion that they don't cover any compounded medications. Which is completely ridiculous, right? Because the compounded medications are controlled. Absolutely. 
the quality as opposed to you going and buying it over the counter. So you would think that getting it done at a pharmacy would be more likely to be covered, right? You would think that, but, you know, insurance, they write these insurance policies in a one-size-fits-all sort of way. And there there are a lot of reasons why, for certain medications, you don't want them to go through the compounding process. And that's more for not the mitococktail or medical therapeutic supplements, but it's more for other types of pharma, you know, pharmacological products, you know, medications. You, you don't want them messing with the form the drug takes, because sometimes that affects the uh, intake process, you know, like, is it time released or things like that? Sometimes they worry about cross-contamination that they don't get let's say, just say Lipitor, just as an example, you know, will crushing that up and compounding it, will that affect its its safety or that sort of thing? Will it be cross-contaminated? Right, the purity of it. Right. So for a lot of these medications, it's understandable why they would say, we don't want to get have you go through a compounding pharmacy, you, you know, just go get your, your Lipitor and take the pill. Um, but, you know, for those of us in the motto community, Compounding is a lot better option than you might get with over-the-counter uh, medications or supplements because you know a lot of these medications in the mono cocktail are not available as prescription medications. You know they're, they're often what we call nutraceuticals, and you know you can go get your CoQ10 at virtually anywhere, but but you don't have the same assurances with a nutraceutical that you do with the medications received by a compounding pharmacy because the FDA doesn't oversee it. And, you know, you don't know, I I don't know of in the model community of any uh, scandals about this, but in other nutraceutical industries, we've seen cases where despite what they advertise being in the product, there actually is very little of the active ingredient there because the FDA is not watching over it. And so they advertise you're getting fish oil and there's no fish oil in it. I just threw that out right, there. Right, it's 1% fish oil. Right. And so, you know, you don't know what you're getting over the counter. And sometimes there are additives, you know, to, to preserve shelf life or to, to improve the taste. So you don't know what else you're getting in those different components. And so getting compounding pharmacy, they obtain it from a lab that even though the product's not FDA governed, the laboratories have a different federal oversight. So the products they're using are pure. The the dosing is known. um, And the compounding pharmacy can, in a sanitary situation, can, can put the medications together and create a liquid that your child can take once a day, twice a day with known dosing of every component, known purity for every component. And it's not you as a parent trying to do it yourself in the kitchen sink. And so it's a, it's a better alternative than not covering compounding. But insurance, one size fits all, typically has a provision that says no compounding. So they rejected us. And that made me angry again. So I started a two-pronged battle. The first was just for Catherine to try to get her, you know, to appeal their denial and get her covered individually. But the second prong was, you know, I'm tired of these rejections and I'm tired of what our community's facing, that I was just going to see if I could get the law changed to make sure that other families don't go through this. The families are going through it now and the families are going to come in the future. 
don't have to go through this. And so I started looking into how to change Kentucky law to mandate uh, coverage for uh, mitococktails. What I discovered as the primary springboard for that, at least here, was there was a law that mandated private insurance cover certain therapeutic food formulas and supplements for inborn errors of metabolism or genetic conditions. This is both for private insurance and there's a separate statute that covers it for uh, Medicaid. And as an attorney and researching my daughter's appeal, I looked at that statute and I frankly thought it ought to cover mitococktails because the wording in Kentucky was very broad. It's not very broad in other states. In a lot of other states, it's very limited and they sometimes spell out specific conditions that are treated and that's it. But in Kentucky, it was very broadly written in a way that perhaps should have covered motto patients to begin with. Insurance companies weren't covering them regardless. And so I decided that the best approach to helping other people was to try to have that law amended to spell out that mito coverage for mitochondrial disease was covered. And I even spelled out some of the ingredients as examples, not exhaustive lists, but as examples of things that needed to be covered. And I also decided to see if I could get it amended so that the compounding issue was taken away, that, that they couldn't deny coverage for any of these medical therapeutic foods, formulas, and supplements based on the fact that you were getting them through a compounding pharmacy. And that was beyond MITO. That was for, for any of these conditions. The more you can provide to the, the people in your state legislature, the better, because they're you know, unlike... In Washington, where the professional politician, these these people are part time politicians, and they've got they've got a day job. They're not experts in this area. They don't have the staffing necessary to necess- to go in and, and draft these laws and make these changes. So, if you could hand them something on a silver platter that they could just take then to get passed as in a law as a law, you know, the, the more you can do, the better. Right. Do you have the the bill number for the mitococktail? It was Senate Bill 18 back in 2016. It was an amendment to a Senate bill, but I can give you the statute, uh, which is in law enacted as a law now. Yeah, that would be great because, you know, as you're talking about providing an example, Right. You've put so much into this. The piece of legislation that you wrote would be could be a great starting point for anybody who's interested in pursuing this in their state to at least understand what legislation and language looks like that benefits the coverage of the mitococktail. Right. And as you said, you know, there are different different things that may impact the language in each state, but at least having that example of one that works um, would be a great place for people to start. Absolutely. Uh, Our particular statute, um, it's called Kentucky Revised Statute number 304.17A-258. That's wonderful. We'll add that on the MitoAction website as well under our advocacy session uh, section so that people can see um, and quickly access that bill. Yes, that, that would be great. And I, I have to say that I took some of the language from 
what was up on Motto Action's webpage, links I had through Motto Action as well for proposed legislation in other states uh, that was more standalone legislation covering Motto Cocktails. And I had to tweak some of the language, but I borrowed some of the language to, to use in Kentucky's uh, therapeutic food formulas and supplements law uh, to make it fit fit what we were doing. And I proposed it not as a standalone law that covered motto cocktails, but as a an amendment or a tweak to existing law, which I think is also, if you can get it in that way, it's a little bit easier to make it palatable. Yeah. It doesn't all fall on you, right? It it You had this physician that was already started down this path. And so the work that you were doing could complement the issue that he was already addressing. And so like, that's an important piece of this. It's not something that you ha- you should take on alone, right? You've got to find the other people who have a seat at the table who may have a complementary, you know, piece of legislation or issue that they're also working on that you can join forces. Ab- absolutely. Just as with Catherine, it's a a story of persistence and determination and not taking no and rallying the community and, you know, sticking with your gut, knowing, knowing what's right and not letting up until that comes to fruition. That's exactly right. I I want to say to the people out there listening, we're lay people, you know, we're not politicians. Uh, I, I do have a little bit of an advantage being an attorney, but Drafting a bill or tweaking the language doesn't take specific legal training. You know, you you can do it. And all it takes is you to find one person who takes an interest in your case and who's in the Senate or your house, and it can can happen. And, you know, in my case, you know, it happened to be a friend, but your your state senators, your state legislative, state representatives, they're they, they have regular jobs. They're like you. They're, you know, my local, uh, the person who has sponsored it, the local representative, she runs a bed and breakfast right up the street from me. You know, one of them was a pediatrician in the next county over. You know, that these are just regular folks and you just have to get their attention. And your children and your stories can get their attention uh, because our kids need help and they can help. And, and frankly, they want to help. But, you know, any one of you can do it. You just gotta, you've got to get the attention of one person. And that's all it ended up taking in our case. And it came through. And that's why these legislative days that are sponsored by NORD and Every Life Foundation and Global Genes are so important to participate in because you get a chance to get in front of your representatives and tell your story. Absolutely. That resonates. You know, their parents, they understand you know, when you put it in perspective of being a parent and, you know, you put a face to it, it matters and it truly can make an impact um, and in laws and and legislation and um, and any one person can be that that conduit for change. Absolutely. The biggest obstacle we have is for people to understand what we're going through. Exactly. Outside of our community, they don't think about these things. I didn't think about these things before. You are inspiration too, and I and I hope you know that, right? Because you keep calling yourself a layperson, but you have you have jumped in not only to support Catherine, but the impact that you and Glenda have made for the entire not only mitochondrial disease but rare disease community um, is, is just amazing. And you're a testament to, you know, again, we keep talking about determination and drive. You're a testament to what not taking no for an answer can do. 
Um, and any member of our community can step up and and have the kind of impact that you guys have. And I just really want to commend you because it's it's hard when you're going through it and, you know, you're getting beat down and you're getting told that there's no hope to get up every day and continue to fight. And you guys have done that with such grace and you really are, you're heroes for our community. Truly you are. I appreciate that. I have to say, I need to give a lot of credit for this. Uh, to my wife, Glenda McCoy. She's the one that started pushing the fight. She's the one that opened my eyes to the fact that we needed to fight. And there were different ways to approach our daughter's medical condition, not just with respect to this bill, but also respect to with respect to research that we're funding and with respect to our online presence to try designed to try to find more families to to aid us in not only a community, but also for fundraising. She's the one that opened my eyes to it. She's the true fighter. And she learned in part how to fight through a uh, uh, Matt and Christina might who have, uh, who had a son in the Ingle one community. And they taught us kind of mentors to us in our own early advocacy and they opened our eyes to the fact that in the rare disease community, we can't wait on research and we can't wait on, wait on funding and we can't wait on pharmaceutical companies and we can't, you know, we have to push because if we don't do it, there's not somebody out there to do it. You have to be your own advocate. You do absolutely have to be your own advocate and you can do it. And if we can do it, anybody can do it. Absolutely. Well, David, I appreciate you sharing your story with us today and continuing to inspire the entire rare disease community. Can you tell us if our listeners are interested in learning more about your foundation, how do they connect with you and Glenda and follow Catherine's story? We have a foundation uh, that has a website that's nubpl.org, O-R-G. And that's now the primary way to reach out to us. Um, We also have an NUBPL Facebook page, which is is similar, and you can reach out to us through that. If you just search NUBPL, it'll come up with it, NUBPL Family Foundation. And that's that's a good way to reach out to us. We have stopped the blog we used to have, which was called Hope for Catherine Bell, uh, because Catherine's reaching that preteen age where she doesn't want to be out there on social media unless it's her own person. So we've pulled back from that blog just to defer to her. If she wants to create an online presence, it'll be hers. But the foundation's still out there. That's wonderful. So I would encourage people, there's so much to learn from from your family and to continue to be inspired on those days when you want to curl up in a fetal position, right? You draw on the inspiration of others to help keep you going. Um, And you guys are definitely a family that provides that for this community. We look forward to continuing to stay in touch, continuing to learn from you, to be inspired by you, and continuing to follow Catherine's amazing, amazing progress. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Energy in Action. Remember to give us a five-star rating on your listening app. This helps to boost us up the charts and makes it easier for others to find us. You can find all of the links and details that we share today in the show notes or at mitoaction.org. Have a great day, and we look forward to having you join us next time.